there's so much more to be tapped out of our body. The body can give us so much more. It's our brain and our ego and our past stories that hold us back. And I believe, you know, as you've heard me talk about, if I put somebody else's head who's way better in sport or in, in this experience of adventure than me on my body, if I put their head on my body, what can they pull out of my body? What can they take my body and propel it to a higher standard, higher level? That just shows me, that delta just shows me what we're capable of, what I'm still capable of, what we're all still capable of. And that space between what we're currently capable of and what somebody else could do with their experience and their narrative and their story and their upbringing and their history, what can they do with our body? Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIM Coach, and this is episode 167. I want to read you something from Jordan Peterson's latest book, Beyond Order. I feel it captures what we're trying to do in the ultra-endurance space, not directly, but sort of a deeper meaning, a deeper connection, a deeper purpose as to why we're searching for something out there in the hours of training. Now you'll notice this week, it's just me talking. David is off on his AIM challenge week cycling and running in the middle of nowhere, (laughs) spending time alone in nature, as well as pushing himself beyond what he's ever done before, especially when it comes to endurance cycling. But I will leave his stories and his adventure to another podcast when we discuss how it went for him and what he learned out there in his own personal solo AIM Challenge Week. But now back to the quote slash the passage that I wanted to read to all of you. Aim at something profound and noble and lofty. If you can find a better path along the way, once you have started moving forward, then switch course. Be careful though. It is not easy to discriminate between changing paths and simply giving up. One hint If the new path you see forward after learning what you needed to learn along your current way appears more challenging, then you can be reasonably sure that you are not deluding or betraying yourself when you change your mind. In this manner, you will zigzag forward. It is not the most efficient way to travel, but there is no real alternative, given that your goals will inevitably change while you pursue them, as you learn what you need to learn while you are disciplining yourself. You will then find yourself turning across time incrementally and gracefully to aim ever more accurately at that tiny pinpoint, the X that marks the spot, the bullseye and the center of the cross to aim at the highest value of which you can conceive. You will pursue a target that is both moving and receding, moving because you do not have the wisdom to aim in the proper direction when you first take aim, receding because no matter how close you come to perfecting what you are currently practicing, new vistas of possible perfection will open up in front of you. Discipline and transformation will nonetheless lead you inexorably forward, 
With will and luck, you will find a story that is meaningful and productive, improves itself with time, and perhaps even provides you with more than a few moments of satisfaction and joy. With will and luck, you will be the hero of that story, the disciplined sojourner, the creative transformer, and the benefactor of your family and broader, si and broader society. Imagine who you could be and then aim single-mindedly at that. I love that passage. Why? Because I feel it captures purpose, clarity, and intention. It also captures how things change once we're along the journey. As I have often said on this podcast, along the journey, the path will present itself. And yes, you will have to switch course quite often, but the path will present itself. You are along the path. You are on your journey. And as you wander into the woods with no clear objective towards your path, you know that beyond the woods, the mountains, the North Star that you're heading to, the direction you're heading in is the right one. And I feel like endurance, athletics, and what we all purposefully strive here with our endurance adventures puts us on that path. It gives us time to think about that path, where we are, where we came from, and where we're heading to. That is the endurance journey. And that's where the adventures in endurance present themselves. A deeper start to this week's episode, I realized that. And while I'm doing my own episode here, sans David, I'm going to dive into some emails and just dive into some deeper topics as well that have been coming up lately as questions or insights and inputs for the Weekly Word Podcast. I hope you enjoy this episode. All right, our strategy for this week's episode will be to go through a variety of emails. Now, I apologize ahead of time if I've already gone through similar concepts, maybe even these emails. I've been not cataloging them the same way as I used to now that David has been helping me with the podcast. So what I'm going to do is quickly, but in depth as well, to not overlook any key points, go through these emails on this email me or email answering episode. All right, email one. I'll be moving to Phoenix from Pittsburgh in July 2021. Uh, Arizona desert climate will be an adjustment to say the least for a North Dakota native. Do you have any advice for picking a race date? I'm thinking a marathon or ultra in the spring, maybe ideal since one can better train through the winter time there. Of course, I'm going to consider how busy I'll be. There was a question from another listener about how they wanted to maintain a low carb diet, yet it sounded like he was suffering from overtraining system syndrome, excuse me. Have you seen this in athletes attempting to follow low carb diet, such as suggested by Phil Maffetone? Each individual is different. However, at some point, all humans go into ketoacidosis. And I can't imagine from a medical perspective, whether this could be healthy. I will go into that. I'm curious just about long-term consequences. I've been plant-based vegan for nine plus years. What would you recommend runners do to a math two week test while maintaining a vegan diet? He states on the website that protein supplementation with powders is highly recommended since it's a highly restrictive diet. I'd be curious as to trying it. All right. Okay. Sorry. I like to just sort of give you all some sort of insight of the email. 
without reading it all. I realize that's boring and then uh, dive into it. So let's go first things first here. Picking a race after moving to an Arizona desert climate, that's fine. You know, in picking races in general, as we're going into November here, late October for next season, as well as just how you want to go about it. First of all, we are coming out of obviously um, a rough two years, a year and a half, let's say by that point, almost two years. Yeah, by the spring. And we want to take the races that we can, right? We want to get back to racing just to have that experience, the community, the fun, the insights, the competition, the supported uh, race effort, right? That you have aid stations and beautiful places and so forth. So we take what we can. But then, yeah, if you can train through the winter, use an early spring or mid-spring race to sort of validate your fitness, to see where you are versus typically given that how you typically come through winter. And now you have an opportunity to be ahead of that person, your own avatar by that point, and then, you know, build on that and see where the season takes you. I'm not... um, going to say there's a any type of scientific or you know specific approach to that it's sort of what are what makes you curious and passionate and a little bit fearful and really pushes the envelope with regards to what you're capable of and keeps the curiosity going that's always part of an event for me and what i push my athletes to do is there some sort of uncertainty and fear attached to it because it will keep the sense of urgency of training high right And then, you know, what is your bigger plan for the season? How does this early season race fit into what you're trying to do for the entire season? What's the goal? Where are we heading? Where, what's the North Star? Why are we going through this forest in order to reach the mountains on the other side? Why are we looking to suffer in training and in a race suffer because it's difficult? Those are the the thought processes I would go through and that I go through with plenty of athletes as we sort of determine, well, how does this fit? And a long-term progression. I had a conversation with an athlete just the other day about the three to five-year plan. And so where do we want to take this? And is this 2022 a good path towards where I want to go um, in 2023, 24, and 25? So, and these conversations come up quite frequently, not to be overlooked. All right, the second part of that was regarding low-carb diet and ketoacidosis and what Phil Maffetone suggests. Now, you know, and it ties into the vegan aspect. It, again, I don't get into this nutrition approach with regards to choice of diet. I have many thoughts on it, but everybody is so specific on why they're choosing what they're choosing. And so if I take a step back, if we take a step back, all of us, and say, well, why am I choosing this approach? Am I looking for a way to improve performance? That's one approach. That's one question. And um, is a diet or an approach, low-carb diet or low-fat diet or high-fat diet, low-carb diet, you know, all those different ways. Is that making me feel better? Do I recover better? Less inflammation? Does my body feel better and therefore I can train better? That's a different conversation than, you know, an environmental concerns and the planet and nature and animals question, right? Like I'm vegan because I don't believe in animals being slaughtered and this, right? All different, all valid. Everybody has their reasons. I totally get it. But it's just for this conversation, what 
is the the thought process by it behind it you know am i looking to clean up my diet you know that's the thing that a lot of plant-based athletes or plant-based people for lack of a better description right now is you know yeah i want to up the protein powder supplementation with protein powders is highly recommended yeah but if you're in it to clean up your diet right because you feel like vegan is cleaner on the body and whole plants and vegetables and stuff like that great but protein powders are highly processed junk so you're you're putting in highly processed powders into your body but your intention was to clean it up right so there's again there's so many little nuances with this um how do we navigate it what is our um, intention behind it what is the deeper root why we're doing what we're doing is it temporary is it permanent have i been vegan for 10 years have i been plant-based for 10 years same thing but um so you get what i'm saying it's too hard to just sort of generalize here and now I'm a coach. I'm an ultra endurance coach. Now, so then if I take this conversation and go back further, the in order to put out the best possible performance effort, it's glycogen burning, high carb burning success. That is 100% proven in the meantime. You can be on a nine hour run or a two hour run, you know carbs are going to be the primary fuel source that they want to burn there's this whole burn more fat and fat for ultra endurance that has worked great for some people but i look at meb kaflisi who does up to 110 grams of carbs per hour while he's running a world record marathon and there's more and more data about the ability of the body to burn carbs and so forth so i'm thinking of it from a performance perspective as an ultra endurance coach right um and so we're going to train our body to a point that we're not just burning fat. We're always burning fat. It's not just primarily carbs, um, primarily being 90 plus percent. We're always burning some fat. And we do want that fat to be properly broken down and utilized for our output. But the primary fuel source remains carbohydrates. And I want to be able to absorb without gut issues as much of those carbs as possible, even if I'm going long, because going long is also depleting our body of carb sources, blood glycogen levels, liver glycogen levels, and so forth, because the length of the activity. And as we're getting fitter, as we're getting stronger, we're going to push that effort that feels like more of an effort versus just go easy all day for a long time um, to have a better performance again this is a performance question this is not a question of just finishing if i'm looking to do let's say a like look at the backyard ultra guy right he just ran 336 some odd miles I, I forget his name um now you would say well that's all fat no it's not <laughs> he was primarily eating carbs at all those eight gels for you know 80 plus hours whatever how many hours was um Again, because even at that long of an effort, he knows it's all about carbs. And people have been seeing more and more from cyclists to runners to speed runners to ultra runners to speed cyclists to ultra cyclists. I don't know much in the swimming community right now yet, but I'm sure that will come forward is that they're seeing more and more. The more carbs I can teach my body to uptake, the better I feel, the stronger I feel, the more output I can deliver. And also in training, the quicker I recover, the quicker, the better the intervals are and so forth. So 
with all this. I'm not saying it's the only way, but that's where all the performance data is pointing lately. And the sports science, for since about 2004, this was discovered. But now more and more, this high carb input is coming. Now, just like anything else, you know, 10 years ago was a different approach. And everybody said that's the latest science. Again, I'm just saying what we're seeing out there right now and what the best in the world do, but also the best long going along in the world do. I mean, I think that's a pretty good sample size. The guy who just went 337 some odd miles. But overall, keep in mind that the tax on the body for an ultra endurance event, you're just taking the effort level and spreading it out over many hours versus high effort, short distance, short time, or steady effort, long time, right? The, the tax, the need for fuel is very similar. Like if you driving or driving your car, if you're going to drive a fast two miles, five miles, you know, it will use more fuel, but it's the same fuel, gasoline. Now, and it's not going to switch over to battery power at any point. Now, if you're driving 500 miles, it's still using gasoline. It still needs gasoline. And now will the, um, the hybrid engine, the battery engine part of it support it more? Sure, a little bit more, but not if you're right on that rivet, right on that rivet is the wrong term because that insinuates too high of an effort. But if you're right on that edge where you're pushing an effort that you that is faster than training, and obviously not the five mile effort, um, you're still burning primarily fuel of that car, you're still in fourth or fifth gear. And those RPMs on the speedometer for 500 miles, trying to push it as get there as smoothly as you can is still going to be pretty high versus training effort for 500 miles would be the RPMs are pretty low. And yeah, then you could consider a higher fat aspect. Again, this is during training and during performance. And that's what I'm thinking of as we're training and as we're doing B races or training races or simulations, I'm thinking about how can I get more carbs in my body? That's how I approach it. That's what I tell my athletes. Now, there's surely plenty of other thoughts around this out there, but that's what I'm currently saying. Not saying it's the only way, not saying it's the right way necessarily, but based off of everything we're seeing right now in the literature, in the science, like science and in performance of top level athletes. I know I realize you can find me just as many top level athletes that are probably really good at, you know, low carb, high fat, right? There's always confirmation of anything. So I'm just saying that's what I'm seeing. That's what I'm observing. That's what I'm sort of responding to also in my training and trying to apply. And I'm liking the results a lot as well. Finally, do you have any recommend reading recommendations on heart rate training and endurance? I find your training's philosophy to be similar to Arthur Lydiard. Yes, I love Arthur Lydiard's approach and Phil Maffetone's training approach, as many of you know from this podcast. Um, no, I don't have any reading recommendations on heart rate training or endurance because I don't read that type of stuff. I read more mindset stuff. I re read more... Um, I read very little about the training and I read more about the mind and the 
how it works with the body and sort of evolutionary biology as well, how we're designed and how we evolved and what's important and what we can't overlook as we're going along. And especially from a mental standpoint, what happens two, three, four, five days into whether it's endurance or it's any type of stress, even if it's work stress or even if it's um, spiritual stress, I mean, meaning relationships or, you know, other trauma in ourselves, in ourselves, meaning in our family or with ourselves or past trauma and so forth. So a psychology standpoint on how can we still perform after four or five days of some sort of stress. That's what I'm fascinated to reading about because I believe and many of you have heard this from me over and over again. I believe there's so much more to be tapped out of our body. The body can give us so much more. It's our brain and our ego and our past stories that hold us back. And I believe, you know, as you've heard me talk about, if I put somebody else's head who's way better in sport or in, in this experience of adventure than me on my body, if I put their head on my body, what can they pull out of my body? What can they take my body and propel it to a higher standard, higher level? That just shows me, that delta just shows me what we're capable of and what I'm still capable of, what we're all still capable of. And that space between what we're currently capable of and what somebody else could do with their experience and their narrative and their story and their upbringing and their history, what can they do with our body? Next, uh, let's see here. <laughs> First of all, you're my favorite person to listen to on the podcast with your friend, Rich Roll. Good. Well, I'm doing another one pretty soon here. So I learned about you on his coach's corner. You are very inspirational. I was listening to the podcast. How important kick is in swimming. I'm 50 years old, 50 years old, have been a swimmer all my life on rec teams and masters. And I wanted to incorporate more kicking into my workouts. You said in your podcast, you could maybe suggest a couple of good kick sets or maybe a video I can watch. Now there's plenty of videos on YouTube with regards to kicking, keeping your toes pointed, keeping that ankle flexion going in order to displace water on the way down and up. Too many people um, kick and once they see themselves kick on let's say a video or somebody taking a short iPhone clip of them, they'll notice that their toes are actually pointing down um, to the bottom of the pool a little bit too much in order to properly displace water. I love this drill. I always go through this drill at my swim clinics and swim camps. And that is next time you get in the pool, take a kickboard and kick with your toes pointing down. That means your toes pulled towards your shins, right? So that you're creating um, less than a 90 degree angle, hopefully, between your toes, ankle, and shin. Um, and so if you're doing that, if your toes are pulled towards your shin, if your foot is pulled up towards your shin, tell me how you're swimming, how you're kicking. <laughs> Usually, I've, I've yet to see a case where people um, don't do this, but they're either going literally backwards. You can kick with a kickboard and move backwards. <laughs> um, or there's kicking in place. And that's what many of us do when we're swimming freestyle. Our feet are just dragging or kicking gently so inefficiently, so ineffectively that they're actually slowing us down. 
Many of us think our feet are just dangling back there and not really contributing, which, okay, that's already an issue. But not contributing and slowing us down are a big difference. So what I recommend for swimming and um, freestyle swimmers, especially triathletes, the important thing is to understand that your feet are pointing backwards to the other end of the pool from where you're coming or from towards in open water towards where you're coming from, not where you're heading to. <laughs> if that's the case, they're truly hankers. So keep that in mind. That's the first part to understand. And then in that same drill, after you did that with your feet pointing towards your shin a couple of times and really notice, wow, that is incredibly ineffective. Do the same thing now, pointing exactly the opposite, as pointed as possible to the other side of the pool. Now, a way to strengthen this, a way to improve this, a way to get more flexion and flexibility and calf recruitment is, is vertical kicking. Vertical kicking is so fantastic with regards to getting propulsion out of your kick because otherwise you sink. <laughs> so you might do something like 10 times 30 seconds with 10 seconds rest or 15 seconds of vertical kicking. Just do it in the deep end of the pool or anywhere where you don't touch the bottom. And I would incorporate this a lot in my kicking. In general, I am a proponent of about a third of each a quarter, excuse me, a quarter of each workout. I was just thinking 4,000 yards about a workout. That's what I swim. So let's say most of you usually swim about 3,000 yards of workout, which is what I say is the minimum for all my athletes, most of my athletes, that when they swim, I don't have them get in the pool for less than 3,000. I never write a workout for less than 3,000 yards. It is what it is. If it takes you an hour and a half to do that, so be it. We have to build up our ability to swim 3,000 yards. Whether it's for a half Ironman or for a full Ironman, 3,000 yards is a minimum. Anyway, I digress. Back to the point. Of that workout, I like to say a quarter of it should be kicking. Now, in most master's programs, because it's customer-oriented, <laughs> people don't like to kick because they're frustrated. A, they don't feel like it's much of a workout. Try that vertical kicking. You'll get a workout. Trust me. Secondly, and so they don't like to kick. And so secondly, it's not included in the workout that much or they get frustrated because they're not going anywhere. And they see people, other people swimming lengths, kicking comfortably. And they're like, well, I don't want to do that. They're, I can't do it. Therefore, let's do something else. Well, that's not going to help the issue. And so I like to say, let's say out of a 3,000-yard workout, 700 and 800 of it should be kicking. That could be 1050s, 875s, 3200s kick, whatever it is you choose. It could be you know 700 yards straight kicking, but kicking not with fins. Fins are helpful at times for to promote the ankle flexion because you have a greater resistance and greater force you need to put out in order to do big sweeping kicks. Too many people, when they put fins on their feet for swimming, I see this every time I'm at Masters, they just use those fins to have those feet dangle further backwards. And yes, it's less resistance because the longer fin doesn't allow you to keep your foot straight down. And so the water smoothly comes off the fin a little bit better. It provides a little bit more flexion for that ankle so that it does spread out. But if you're going to wear fins in swimming, in a swim practice, make sure you're doing big, strong, sweeping kicks. Again, try vertical kicking with fins. 
It's a great exercise too. Another way to highlight that you're trying to feel what effective kicking should be like. And it'll quickly highlight that. So with fins, without fins, and so forth. But don't just wear fins in a master's workout or in any workout, just so that you don't have to drag your feet behind you. Because that, again, is another sign that your feet are pointing to the bottom of the pool and creating anchors and slowing you down. And so therefore, you're putting those fins on and it's helping a little bit with a slight flutter to not have them be so slow on you. And many will say, well, I'm a triathlete. What do I need to kick for? I have a wetsuit on, my feet are nice and light and and that buoyant wetsuit, I just don't need to use them. Or they come to me with this hilarious argument that many of you have heard from me over the years with regards to um, kicking. Well, I don't want to fatigue my legs on the swim (laughs) for the rest of the triathlon. No, like I keep saying to athletes, if you think a light flutter kick while you're swimming for an Olympic distance triathlon, 1.5 kilometers, for a half Ironman, 2.1 miles, or for an Ironman, 4.2 miles, um, is going to fatigue you for what all the remaining day is ahead of you, you have different issues. Like, <laughs> like if those 30 minutes of swimming, that light flutter kick is going to fatigue your legs that you therefore can't bike well enough or run well enough, then your fitness is lacking in such a dramatic way that we've got other issues. So just saying. All right, I think that's, uh, I think that's um, plenty of insight there. Next. Hey, Chris, thank you for sharing your knowledge and insights into endurance sports. I recently moved to La Quinta. I like that. Great spot. Um, For the past few months, the coolest temperature at 530 in the morning is typically 90 degrees. We get this question a lot. Is there a way to get zone two volume in without having to continuously walk to keep the heart rate? Or is that pretty much the only way to do it? Unfortunately, in a lot of ways, yes. Um, let's, Let's go through a few ways to do that. So cold shower prior um, so that you quickly cool down your skin temperature and your overall core temperature so that you can go further or go longer until the heart rate elevates until you have to walk. Something to keep in mind. Um, Some people also do loops. So let's say you typically can run three miles um, at that time in the morning before it gets too hot. Or in general, like even my athletes in Australia and things like that. I mean, it's 120 degrees there at 4.30 in the morning. You know, they sometimes go out for a bike ride, but it's quickly in the 80s by, you know, 5.30 in the morning. Like, it's brutal. So three miles, let's say you get before your heart rate really elevating and getting significantly out of zone two. Then they run through their past their house and there's a cold bucket of water. Boom, pour it all over them. What I always recommend for hot weather training, really hot, you're going to get wet. You're going to have sloshy wet feet and shoes. It's just part of it, either by sweat or by by pouring water on you. But from what I've learned and seen and gone through with trials and tribulations, the best way to stay with it is to somehow figure out a way to continue to pour water on you to keep your body cooler. Because yes, of course there is a heat stress. And so what happens over time, you get well enough acclimated, not to the heat, but to the familiarity of what zone two, when your body's cool, feels like. And then 
eventually you can sync the two up. Now, many of you have heard this over the years, as well as my athletes know this, that it, I'm not looking for you to stay in zone two or stay with zone two heart rate training forever. I'm trying to educate you so that you know at any point in time, like Rich talks about a lot, a lot. he to this day still seems to have a good sense of what zone two feels like. Even though that he hasn't tested or done any type of zone two work in years, but he knows how easy it feels. And so for the, in, in hot temperatures like this, if you know and are, have cross-checked it multiple times on what it feels like to be zone two and it actually be in zone two with a heart rate and then see the paces of what you're running when you're actually effectively in zone two heart rate, then you can ever so gently after a couple of weeks two months maybe, start moving away from the heart rate as, and keeping it easy enough. And now you're going to say, well, that might mean I move out of zone two. It will mean that you move out of zone two. But again, we know we're throwing this layer of heat stress on there and it's just an additional physiological stress. It will limit the potential gains fitness gains that we're looking to achieve, but we also want to keep our sanity in the training. We also want to keep it not, not fun is the wrong term, but you know, reasonably motivated to continue to train without always having to walk. And so I would commit for a few weeks, get really familiar with what it feels like when I'm in the proper heart rate zone, and then ever so gently move away from the heart rate training and keep the sensation and pace in line. Pace is irregardless, like cycling watts um, to environment, right? It could be freezing cold or boiling hot. Pace is pace. It's a number. Same as a watt is a watt is a watt. Um, and so therefore, if we take that plus RPE, rate of perceived exertion, how you're feeling, if we have those two and they're in line, then you can say, all right, I'm not going to look at heart rate today because it's too frustrating. And then you can sort of work into that relationship. Every now and then I would reconfirm that my feel and pace are still on the same page with regards to heart rate. I might need to test again and so forth, but that should answer that. Next. This is an injury question. And this is um, a question I answered pretty quickly for uh, Catherine when she sent it, but I thought I'd bring it up on the, on the podcast. Thanks for getting back to me so quickly. Oh, this is the second part of the email. <laughs> Sorry. Hi, uh, so-and-so gave me your contact information. He suggested you might be able to help me. I was training for Ironman Wisconsin, however, last Saturday. And so this email is from September 11th. Um, so right, uh, I would say two weeks before Wisconsin. Uh, maybe even a week. Last Saturday, I had a freak accident and fractured two ribs. I had to withdraw from the race. Not sure what's worse, the emotional, mental, or physical pain. I hear you. As you can imagine, I've been training a long and hard and don't want to lose fitness and want to keep the hope that I can still do an Ironman before the end of the year. I've been walking 30 minutes one or two times a day most days this week. Uh, today, I was able to get on the stair stepper for 30 minutes and do some right leg and bicep tricep strength work. Am I crazy to think I can recover safely and ramp up in time for an Ironman race in November? It will be my first full Ironman. However, I've done seven half Ironmans over the past three years. So my question back to her after telling her how sorry I am, she got injured and 
I'm familiar with how broken ribs feel, and it's brutal in the beginning. And uh, the, the pain along with the emotional pain is, is quite substantial. So I asked her, um, two fractured ribs, what is the timing on recovery? How bad is your current pain, right? I also asked, how does your current how do your current movements and that hiking slash strength work feel, which Ironman, Arizona, Cosmo, Florida, or, or others, maybe Mallorca or whatever. Um, let's dive into doing what we can do, and then we'll go from there. So um, she wrote me back, recovery is about six weeks. So that put her from September 11th, let's say a couple days prior, so September 5th, 6th-ish, six weeks puts her mid-October, back end of October. I was hoping the pain subsides. I'll get on my trainer after two weeks. Okay. And however, after doing 30 minutes on the stair stepper and some squats and curls yesterday, my pain is definitely worse. I was hoping to do Ironman Arizona. And then she lifts me a bunch of half Ironmans that she did that were plenty fast, right? Um, we're talking 530 to 540 for a half Ironman um, as a woman. So she's plenty strong. Um, she's a strong cyclist, clearly. Um, that seems to be her best event. I quickly got back to her and let her know, yeah, absolutely this is possible. Is it possible to your highest possible potential? Of course not. But can you do an Ironman? Of course. I would focus on getting healthy first, right? Because I'd rather do it on a healthy body that isn't perfectly trained versus on a somewhat recovered but not fully recovered body that's going to come up with some pain management and still not to my potential <laughs> right i'm not going to take two blows i'd rather only take one blow so given your abilities i wrote her um you can do it but we have to change the expectations right you can will your way through an iron man especially arizona it's flatter and with her trainer time of let's say like we're saying the back end of October, she'll be able to train again, like effectively. That gives her three weeks with a couple days taper. Now you say, what, Chris, only a couple days taper? Well, yeah, because she's coming into it quite fresh. She's not broken down. So a three week reconnect with all the distances and the body and the build, and then a short taper, because again, she's not completely fatigued. We'll give her the confidence she can do the distance. We'll reconnect her somewhat to her ability of what's realistic for that day to set the proper expectations, hopefully to exceed them. And then rest and do your best on that day. So, um, and then it's strategy. It's a question of strategy. How do we successfully navigate through that day? She's not one of my athletes. Um, how do we successfully navigate through that day in order to take advantage of what you currently have? And that is a strong mind. We have experience. We have a lot of the disciplines that actually work with regards to cycling. Swimming and running might still hurt a bit. Swimming for sure the most. We might even have to do this event with no swimming, right? And just sort of allow the wetsuit and the healing until then to do its best and then just sort of manage our way through the swim she'll have been cycling for four to five weeks by that point because she'll get on her trainer pretty quickly so that's mid-october maybe early october so the ability to get familiar and steady on the bike again not a problem 
And running, yeah, that again will have to be a strategy question. Do we run five miles, walk two? You know, do we run 10, walk one, run nine, walk one, and so forth until we're done? Don't know her, don't know enough about it. But again, there's many ways we can go about it, and her dream is not gone. She can definitely do her first Ironman to the point of, well, why do my first Ironman if I'm going to be partially or somewhat compromised like this? I can't stress enough to any one of you, get the first one done because it'll make the training and your knowledge into the next one exponentially better. You will be so stoked that you did one and understand it better, even compromised, than just this big unknown and how I'm training for it. Could there be ways to optimize it? You learn that by doing one. Chris, I'm a bit emotional as I write this. I started following you in 2017 after Finding Ultra, reading Finding Ultra. I was 240, unemployed, depressed, lost, could barely run a mile. Inspired, I signed up for a sprint triathlon, but in my heart, I knew that a guy like me could never do more than a 5K run. Switched up my diet, went fully plant-based, and started walking, biking, and running around the block, anything to get outside moving. That already is success. I don't have to keep going from there even. Like at that point, it's already success. The impetus of what you did and how you started, not how you started, how you took action to change your story. If you want to change your story, you have to take action. The body and the subconscious knows that if you're taking action, you're pushing past the resistance, pushing past the voices in your head, pushing past your past story and narrative and creating a new one. And that is the most important component here. I'm not listening to that. I want the new version. I want potential. I want a new me, a new future. I want to change the past by creating for me in this moment, right now out the door, a better future. There were about a thousand times when I wanted to hit snooze, but had your voice in my head saying, you gotta do the work. Yes, yes, yes. I can't stress that enough. There's two things that I like to get across to everybody. You gotta do the work. And I'm going to have David somehow find that episode because that's one episode that keeps coming up for so many athletes and so many inquiries. And when I talk to many of you about what's popular or what worked well on the podcast, this comes up. And the other thing I always bring up is get shit done. Excuse my language, but it works. Get shit done. You got to do the work and get shit done. When the voice inside your head comes up and says, well, sleep more, get shit done. Oh, I don't have time for that right now. Get shit done, right? Th that answer, just finish it. Finish the sentence with get shit done or you got to do the work. I can't, no, get shit done. That's a lot of cussing in there. Late nights, early mornings, rainy days, cold days, hot days. Well, I ended up finishing that sprint triathlon at the end of the summer. And I loved it so much, I signed up for a 10K, then a nine-mile race, and then a half marathon, and then a full marathon, and eventually a half Ironman. I mean, this is awesome. Last weekend, I crossed the finish line at Ironman Wisconsin with a time of 13.20. Not only did I smash my overall time goal, but I beat my previous swim record by almost 30 minutes swam a 109. Jeez, that's awesome. And ran the fastest marathon of my life. Congratulations. My parents cried as they watched me cross the finish line. 
You fundamentally changed my life for the better. I needed you to know that the impact you've had on people like me with your words and guidance, even though we've never met, thank you for the work you do. Well, I appreciate that. And um, this is why I do what I do. And not that I look for emails like this. I know that there's one or five or 10 or 1,000 of you out there who have had some sort of connection or what I say or have said or what Rich and I have said or what Rich said resonated. And it created that impetus that I was just talking about. And you went out there and got shit done. And from there, things ever so gently, ever so incrementally improved. And as I read in the opening of this, aim, aim at something, discipline yourself, see what's possible. There is a potential waiting to be unleashed for all of us, a potential that I believe can be hit via endurance training. As I said the other day, oftentimes we think it's the finish line that we're striving for, but switch that narrative, switch that conversation, switch that perspective a little bit. And are maybe these events and this training an emotional, spiritual, and psychological challenge that masquerades as a physical challenge. That's what I asked my athletes for the AIM Challenge Week um, a couple weeks too. Is this challenge week an emotional, spiritual, or psychological challenge that masquerades as a physical challenge? And what this gentleman did with his Ironman Wisconsin, yeah, we used, he used, not we, excuse me, he used those events that the nine miler, the 10K, the 5K, the sprint triathlon, the half Ironman, the marathon, the, the Ironman as a vehicle in order to have the emotional, spiritual, psychological growth, physical as well, whatever it takes for us to get to unleashing potential, our potential higher self, not our highest, never our highest. We're never done growing. We're never done learning. We're never done optimizing. We're never done seeing what another version of us is. As I was reading in the opening from Jordan Peterson, he brings that up especially. What do we need to give us that impetus? And in this case, for many of us, especially those of us listening here, a physical challenge opens that door, opens that portal to growth, psychological, spiritual, emotional, whatever it is. Hey, Chris, hope the O'Hurrigan coast ride is going great. So we're almost caught up here. We're heading into October. Photos look nice and sunny. Yeah, we had an epic coast ride. Um, the winds were not as favorable as past years. We had some headwind days, but it was dry and sunny every single day. <laughs> also really enjoy your podcast. Still have to go through 86 to 111 to be all caught up. Well, good for you. I'm, I'm humbled by your, your diligence to go through listening to my voice that much. Question, maybe for the podcast. For a non-swimmer, for us non-swimmer triathletes, 30-minute half Ironman, 70-75-minute Ironman. By the way, those are swimmer triathletes. Non-swimmer triathletes are 45-minute half Ironmans and about 140 to 2 hours half Ironman. And I'm not, that's not insulting in any way. That's more just to say, 
that you are ahead of the masses with a 70 minute Ironman swim and you're ahead of the masses with a 30 minute half Ironman swim. So keep that in mind, but I don't, I'm sure that's not why you're writing me. I have for 15 plus years after pool swimming, not so much open water, probably lack of chemicals. Hopefully my stomach gets really tight, uncomfortable. Hmm. I can only think I'm taking in water, but I do not get that sensation while swimming. I know a lot of core is involved, correct, in swimming too, and maybe that's a fair factor. It's not terribly uncomfortable, but annoying. Makes post-workout fueling difficult. Just thought I would ask. It's a good question, um, and one I don't have a quick answer to. I would surely start with some core work. I would also check your breathing. Are you holding your breath too much while swimming? How is your breathing pattern? Are you truly exhaling underwater and inhaling when your head is turned to breathe in water. I know a lot of swimmers who are sort of beginner swimmers or not as experienced swimmers who exhale and breathe while their head is out of the water, meaning while they're in their breathing cycle. It's a common response because people just don't want to open their mouth substantially or exhale at all, even through the nose underwater. It's just a, a subconscious reaction to keep things all closed up and bottled up. So check that. I would also check how your torso is twisting and moving during your swimming. Um, I'd be glad to look at a video of you swimming. So why don't you just email me a short iPhone clip or Android clip of your swimming from the side as somebody's walking along. Hopefully somebody can help you with that. And I'll give you some quick thoughts and feedback to that. I'd be glad to help. Um, now, this doesn't mean everybody on the podcast send me a video. <laughs> Please don't. But that being said, um, I'm always looking to help anybody. So in this specific case where I don't have a good description of, of an answer as well as a good answer, let's take a look at your swim stroke and how you're swimming. Next, Chris, I thought this might make a good podcast question. Apologies if you've covered before. I'm planning a 60-mile flat ultra. And based on my 100K times, I'm shooting for around 12 hours. 12-minute pace seems like an unnatural speed to run. Would you recommend running faster than that and then taking walking breaks? What would you recommend for the ratio of running to walking for Maza? How do you choose a running pace? Just go for low zone 2, high zone 2. Is it realistic to try even split to even split a run of that distance? Or will my running slash walking pace slow me down over time? This ties into your fitness levels already as well. Um, so it's hard to capture everything here in a short paragraph. But if it's a 60 mile flat ultra run, I would not look for a pace at all. I would sort of just start running. <laughs> and if, after, if, again, this brings us back to the, the earlier email. And that is once you triangulate pace with zone two along with feel, you on the race sort of dial in feel and heart rate that is being conservative. And the reason we say it this way around, we don't want to look at pace early in an ultra. It's, um, it's bothersome. But you'll find that the pace matched with heart rate in, in the race is just a governor to make sure you don't take the first third, the first 20 miles of this race out too fast. It feels easy. I look down at my watch and I go, ooh, that heart rate's so a little too high. So my feel is off, 
right? My perception of feel is a little off, and therefore I should consider I use my heart rate as a governor to slow it down even more. That's what I would do in the race. But as you're training, no, do your zone two running. Don't worry about training race effort. What will happen typically is that you'll start, let's say, and I'm just using your 12 minute mile pace. You'll probably start the first 20 miles at maybe nine highs, 10 lows, just shuffling along jogging. Yeah. And saving energy. That's totally fine. And then you'll slow down when you slow down to 11s and 12s, maybe even 13s late in that, so that the overall average is 12 minute miles and you'll achieve your desired outcome. But I wouldn't necessarily train that pace. Now, what I often do for this stuff in the training for my athletes, I use a 10 to 15% number. So 10% of 12 minutes, right, is 12 times 60. So that's 720 seconds. So we're talking 72 seconds faster, which means, so right, 10% of uh, 720 is 72, 72 seconds faster makes it 1045 pace. So that's what I would sort of, you know, look at, not necessarily as a end all be all, this is the pace I'm gonna run because Chris said so, no, but I just look at that as a number and start evaluating that. So, hey, when I'm fresh and I'm not fatigued and I go out for a long flat run because it's a flat road ultra, um, 1030s and 1040s seem to be just right. That's a good number. And then you can sort of project that you'll be slowing down by 10% over the course of the, you know, after 20, 30 miles, and then maybe by another 10% after another 20 miles so that you end up averaging exactly 12 minute mile pace. That's sort of how I would go about it. I'm not a big fan of racing by heart rate. I use heart rate as a guide. And that is, is my pace or is my wattage, is my perceived exertion aligned? And if it is, because my heart rate is also somewhat there or steady with it, then I'm fine. But I don't use it as dictating my pace, dictating my output. I go by sensation. All right, we'll dive into one more. No, two more. How many more do we have? One, two more. That's it. All right, on to the next one. Uh, hi, Chris and team. Whoa, team. You may use this on the pod if you feel like it and could help others with self-curated events. First, I would like to say thank you for your guidance and content you put out for self-coached athletes like me. Yeah, I mean... Many ask me um, why so much content and, you know, this isn't just my athletes listening. And the self-coached athletes, that's exactly who this is for. You know, I understand not everybody's looking to get a coach. And so having a voice, a platform here to share what it is, I can, how I can assist and add value in any way to this endurance community. That's the primary mission, right? Like I've talked a lot on this podcast about what my goal is. And my goal is to help all of you unleash endurance potential because I believe there's a better version of us out there when we're connected to the endurance athlete within all of us. So self-coached or coached or even coached by somebody else, but listening to this podcast. I feel like you're able to articulate many of the concepts that have in my head and you sort of, and you sort through the wheat of the ch from the chaff, which doesn't happen on various forums like slow Twitch, Reddit, etc. <laughs> I have no idea. I don't look at those. I have an opportunity to support a friend's FKT attempt 
of the Bruce Trail, a beautiful 900-kilometer trail that follows the Niagara Escarpment from the Bruce Peninsula on Lake Huron to Niagara Falls. Wow. There we go. That's a self-curated adventure. In case you're wondering about the scale of this route, the current FKT is 8 days, 22 hours, 51 minutes, and 45 seconds, and held by Karen Holland. Shout out to the ladies for sure. I know that these events aren't successful without robust planning, solid contingencies, logistical MacGyvering, and awesome levels of support and enthusiasm from the crews who prop their athletes who prop up their athletes and allow them to focus on the execution part of their respective events. Correct. What tips and resources can you share that will help build the crew with the right skill set? Best practices for planning all of the elements of the event. What makes a crew more successful? What are some of the common pitfalls you have seen with your events or your athletes' events over the years? Are there checklists and tools out there that will prevent us from having to reinvent the wheel. As people continue to push the boundaries of what we consider possible, what we deem possible, building the effectiveness of the crew behind those possibilities may help the collective dreams continue to grow. Thanks again for the podcast. Um, all right, so let's dive into this. Uh, this is a very fun, actually good question, and I've never really sort of gone through it on the podcast. Crews, let's dive into it from um, the first step. So a crew, uh, for those of you that don't know, is um, a group of you know, one to six, ten people that support um, the athlete on their endurance adventure, especially when it's self-supported or even if it is supported, you know, a crew for 100-mile races, a pace runner, and people that sort of have the gear and food and fueling and hydration and mental support already as the athlete, the runner, comes through. That's a crew. And a crew does all kinds of things from popping blisters and first aid to massaging to positive and support as well as um, smacking them across the face and waking them up <laughs> and saying get going or um, you know motivational whatever you can think of out there if somebody else delivering the news or delivering the help is um, of benefit that's a crew so what tips and resources can you share that will help build the crew with the right skill set well, for something that's eight days, 22 hours, so let's just say it's eight to nine days. You know, I think the first part that I look for when I build crews and I see crews is that the crew members are all familiar with each other and they know what type of talents and skill sets they're bringing to the crew. You don't want five or six people with the same skill set or the same talents all on the same crew because that's sort of people will feel slighted or um, their toe, feel like their toes are stepped on when uh, decision makers or not that's another issue um, so it, as it sort of unfolds so you want different skills you know i've when my crew i always have the super reliable knowledgeable person that's super calm under pressure and can deliver news in a very clear relaxed matter of fact way i don't want anxiety on a crew and i think in general that's something to look out for we all have friends that they get like very worked up very easily. Not the people to have on a crew. Maybe to cheer on, but not to have on a crew. 
Um, so I look across skill sets like that. I also look for somebody in a case like this with some medical skills. I mean, I just want somebody out there that knows that some um, first aid, some emergency medical aspects, just because when we're out there in the middle of nowhere, I want to be able as the athlete to look at somebody straight in the eye and feel I have a very deep level of trust for them with regards to the advice, medical advice that they're giving me. In general, the people on the crew, I should know them well enough that I feel I can trust them, that they truly have my best interest in mind, of course, but also that I trust them, that there's no question or second guessing. Well, in the past, they sort of say this, but you know, I didn't really listen to it. No, you do not want those people on your crew. Can be great friends, but you want somebody who you trust and really know, you know that they're thinking it through which speaking of thinking it through is also you want a crew that you know when you're not around they are discussing they are thinking of options they are working through logistics and other outcomes they're thinking through what's going wrong what kind of solutions there could be it's always a situation of when the athlete connects with the crew, whether they're right there, in my case, swimming, they're in the boat next to me, or in 100 or 200 or 300 milers, where you see them every 20, 30, 40 miles, so that maybe every six, seven, eight hours, or every three, four hours even, that when you come and see them, you know that they're prepared for you. They know the situation, they know who you are, they know what you might be struggling with, that you can quickly communicate and then they can go take the next three, four hours and solve and work through any issues um, that you may be having or any support that you need. That you can rely on them that when you're out continuing on with your FKT attempt or your race or your adventure, that you know you have a team, a crew that is taking care of all the other aspects around you. Now that changes in different events, right? A crew for Ultraman is different than a crew for a 100 miler, is different than a crew for a 900 km um, FKT attempt and so forth. So there is some differences there on what you want to have with you. So what tips and resources can you share? So we talked about skill sets being varied. We talked about a crew lead. You definitely want a crew lead, somebody that you designate or that the athlete designates in order to say, all right, that's the final decision. As you guys are going through options or taking the lead, these are the five things we're gonna deliver to Johnny when it's time, when he comes in, um, because those are the best um, ideas or the best solutions or the best so forth. A crew lead is very important just again, because this isn't a short event. This is many days. So there's many decisions being made. And so you just want to have somebody who can actually in a trusting and collaborative and communicative way, take in everybody's inputs and then come to a conclusion. And hopefully with the entire group that they're all on the same page, again, they need to get along. They need to trust each other so that you don't have squabbling or um, egos involved while you're not around. And that's the highest principle, highest need of a crew. Whenever I put crews together, I want them to have a grand old time when I'm out running, swimming, whatever, biking, um, doing my thing. Knowing that they are having a nice time there and they're volunteering to help me achieve said outcome is an incredibly positive feeling because you're bringing a bunch of people together, five, seven, 10 people together 
in a volunteer effort for you, what could be a pretty selfish cause, if you look at it from the outside in, no, they're there to support you and they love your cause as well. So hopefully it doesn't come across as selfish. But knowing that they're getting along and having a good time and they're enjoying their time there as well, independent of how you're doing and what you're doing, that they're out in nature together, adventure, having their own experiences, creating their own stories, that's awesome. That to me is the most important ingredient of a good crew. Because then when they're having a good time, when decisions need to be made or logistics come up or problems arise, they're because they're having fun, because they're getting along well, their decision-making is going to be a lot more effective and open and collaborative and fun. That's one of the key ingredients, what I look for. You know, um, again, this is eight to nine days of FKT. You should have sleep strategies and fuel strategies. The sleeping strategy is a big one there. I know you're not going to plan, I hope, to go nine days without sleep. So how will you work through that? You should have potential outputs for each scenario. Is he only going to sleep or she? I don't know. Um, trying to see if this is a he or she attempting it. I don't think I saw that. So I would want to make sure that um, we have sleep strategies worked out. So um, he or she lays down for 30 minutes. Okay, dead asleep, right? Do, do we agree on 30 minutes? But if I'm having really good sleep and they're not tossing and turning, that they're just truly, truly getting deep sleep, restorative, very beneficial sleep, well, maybe this is the time we sleep two hours, right? In order to then go through a big push of time. So there's a lot of little decisions in that on how to go through sleep. Remember, for an event like this, that's nine days long, you want to consider what I'm doing on day one and day two is going to affect dramatically what happens on day four and five and six. And what happens on four and five and six is going to dramatically affect eight, nine, and right? So the entire time you're constantly preparing and dealing with the now with an eye on your future self with the future version of that athlete in order to know, okay, the decisions we made today will also fit and positively align with the athlete he or she wants to be in 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 hours, right? So there's a lot of back and forth going on there and a lot of collaboration then it's up to the athlete also to clearly communicate that. There's a lot of crew meetings happening prior to this so that you feel good that you know what the athlete wants, that you know all the fears and thoughts they're going through so that you can incorporate those into all your decisions. You want to know that everything that the athlete is going through or potentially will go through or can go through has been laid out on the proverbial table for you all to discuss, for you all to um, simulate different scenarios, how that might come up. So there's so many nuances to a good crew, and that takes a lot of experience. Um, that's something David is learning right now as he's crewing for a couple hundred mile events. Um, and it's important. It really does tie in regards to the Ultraman and longer events like this into the successful outcome of the adventure. I mean, a crew will be critical for this, almost a thousand kilometers of running. That's a big, big 
big attempt. What uh, best practices for planning all elements of the event? Um, yeah, so that's all prior. That's all written out and multiple meetings prior and getting the crew together and sort of getting a vibe for how they interact and getting an understanding of decision making and what they're thinking of. And again, you the athlete communicating very effectively what all the outcomes are you're looking for and what could go wrong and what how you would approach that so that they then know he's probably or she's thinking about approaching it like this therefore we have to keep this in mind you know now a lot of these questions can be answered at depending on how well the crew member the crew lead or crew member knows the athlete like in my case phil he's known me for 20 plus years and so he's been on many of my adventures and phil just knows my decision making knows what i'm thinking knows how i don't want to give up knows what kind of situations that might put me in he knows um what i tolerate with regards to safety or injury and health right um, and so he can weigh those things pretty well and take in a lot of input from people and just sort of deliver it in a very yeah you know, matter of fact, sort of nonchalant manner, which is exactly what I want in those moments. I'm intense enough in how I go about the event or my training. Therefore, having a nonchalant sort of um, objective view from Phil, who's usually the crew lead on a lot of these things is great, because I can just rely on him to deliver it very calmly and smoothly. So that's, uh, that's something I would also think about as you're building a crew. Um, what else? What are some of the common pitfalls you you have seen with your events or your athletes over the uh, events over the years? You know, uh, that the crew, one doesn't get along that you don't want. And then the burden of two or three or one or two sort of stepping away and saying, you know, I'm not being listened to anyway, or I'm not being asked for my input. I'm just sort of here being told what to do. That's not a good crew. You want everybody to feel like they're contributing and providing value. It's a lot of time. I mean, this is like 10 days of their life, plus all the meetings prior in order to get this all going in the right direction. So they're making a huge sacrifice for my swim in Tahoe. Three, four, five days, people came up to Tahoe and hung out and prepared with me. So, you know, it's a big sacrifice. So in that, I want to know that they all feel heard feel valued, feel like they're contributing, feel like they're part of the team that makes this successful. That is huge. And that is a common pitfall that somebody or someone on the, the crew doesn't feel like they're being heard and so forth. So the checklists and tools like for a checklist, that is critical too. Those are the things you go over. Um, but those are more for, str uh, uh, excuse me, stage races because you want to have a checklist of things you go through when you're done for that day so that you're setting up an optimal recovery and prep and thinking of all the things you need to for the next stage day two day three day seven day 20 whatever that's where i usually really implement checklists uh, here the aspect of checklists is more what kind of sleeping are we planning so i don't know if there's if there's planned like four or five hours sleep windows if there's you know shorter 40 50 60 90 minute sleep windows like i do with a lot of solo sailors um, in order to sort of keep them going but getting the, the minimum amount of sleep for many days in order to cover big distances um, so i don't have enough information there 
uh, the checklist until so then other things you know when you're coming out of sleep or what's the recovery or what's the fueling or what's the meals and that you have all these things listed out um, I would surely have a checklist as the athlete comes across certain checkpoints and so we can do a check in with how the athlete is doing meaning how are you feeling what are you experiencing what niggles are you feeling are you having any blisters how's the fueling going how's the hydrating going how what's the mood what's the mental state all those things that come up that can derail an athlete as they head out into the next four five six seven ten twenty thirty hours of running those are the challenging parts when it comes to a communication with the crew like you are about to leave them and you want to make sure that you gave them all the pertinent information you the athlete in order for them to then effectively crew for you and so it's an interplay between the athlete and the crew so that gets rehearsed prior to what is it you need how are you feeling what are you observing what are your thoughts what's your mood those things provide a picture and insight into now that the crew knows well he's doing great he's not really using a lot of mental energy he's not really digging deep yet he's just sort of plodding along doing his thing or her thing i don't know if it's a he or she sorry um so you know those are things that are great and then when things are going wrong right like oh he's really struggling he seems to be limping he has a low back issue he has a gi issue he has a blister issue he has an ankle issue he rolled his ankle something um so then okay now let's start going he's hiking things are slowing down there because of his ankle um now what do we what can we do what what do we need to prepare him what other shoes do we have what other gear do we have so that we can support that ankle do we have some higher shoes that support the ankle can we tape it like i mean as you can hear there's a zillion different scenarios of what could happen on a thousand kilometer trail uh, adventure over many days and having walked through them all you're not going to walk through them all because that's impossible but having a good understanding of what the thresholds and tolerances are and what the moods are and all those things all comes up so huh, i think i'm trying to answer it as best as i can um we went through tips and resources how to build the crew skill sets yeah i would definitely want somebody in my crew that has done some long ultra endurance stuff in order to recognize how dreary and difficult and shockingly um, miserable and scary many of these sections can be you want a crew member that can see the worst version of that athlete whether it's sad or overwhelmed or completely blown to bits, meaning like emotionally and um, physically and how to work them through that and get them back out there and not be bothered by that or concerned by that because, you know, you know the athlete well enough and so forth. I mean, there's a lot of psychological stress on the crew too because they're going to see this athlete and go through some very difficult um mental and psychological phases but also physical right i mean throwing up and you know, you know gi issues and diarrhea and um maybe cuts and wounds and deep wounds and you know where we just bandage that up and we keep going i mean there's there's so much that can happen out there like, like i've been crewing for ultraman or even for things like and I'm not um, bad water. That didn't happen at bad water. But somebody like crashing on a bike and ripping off their entire like hip and all the 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 um, 
skin off their hip as they crashed on their bike because they slid and you know patching that back up and what kind of shorts are we using how can this person keep cycling despite the pain what are we spraying it with what are we telling them to sort of go through as they're you know in a lot of pain from all their skin being ripped open and ripped off as they kept going Um, managing that and just sort of staying positive and not looking too concerned so that the athlete looking straight into your face is like how bad is it how bad is it and they're looking for signals on your face and you you have to be sort of a a, an actor to show yeah it's you know yeah of course you you dinged yourself up pretty bad but you know we're going to keep going let's find out let's keep let's continue to work on this and we'll let's talk about it once you cycle another 40 miles right or i'll talk to you in two hours until then keep hobbling along with that twisted ankle or something like that i know i'm selling it (laughs) i'm selling fkts and crews pretty (laughs) pretty well here meaning some of you might be completely intimidated by it and some of you you might be like that sounds awesome how do i crew um common pitfalls checklists so I don't know uh, if you have questions maybe just continue to send them to me i'm fine to help i think these ambitions are great yeah and crew is critical it's a big part of a successful outcome the part that i keep forgetting when i talk about crew is that part of the crew needs a crew and that is oftentimes a good crew will split up let's say four is with the our four are with the runner and two are out getting supplies, getting food and lunch and snacks and dinner and breakfast and coffee and fueling and hydration for the crew that is out there too. Oftentimes in these self-curated adventures, you're out in the middle of nowhere. So having two people running logistics for the crew because the crew is taking care of the athlete this is an incredibly important point not to overlook for self-curated adventures access is sometimes very difficult so for the crew that is supporting the runner to have access and food and fueling and hydration not just race food or event food or athlete food but real food because again their hours are often longer then the athletes while the athlete is sleeping the crew is working and here you go again with an fkt attempt if this is an fkt attempt you will also need to be able to document everything independently so that's going to take a crew member or two alone right there to properly document every aspect of gps coordinates insights um, describing terrain and scenery when those gps coordinates came in how the runner is doing all the things you're observing very similar to david's role in my swim he was the person documenting the swim with gps pings coordinates insights what the swimmer did at every stop in order to paint a picture for those verifying the fkt attempt in this case or in my case verifying my unsupported swim that it were my open water rules legal swim Um, that they can then those verifying it have a good picture understanding along with data with it to validate what it is you're doing all right well i think that should be it um, for today let me see if there, there was anything else i wanted to talk about on this podcast 167 of the weekly word back to just me talking <laughs> there is uh 
a big database of um, AIMP cycling intervals that I have on my website. And that is free to almost anybody. Now, the latest versions, the last year or two, not that they're materially different, um, but those are closed to password just because they're more specific to the current season of athletes. But those from a year or two ago are all available for any of you to use as you're doing some indoor cycling here into the winter. And many athletes ask me, especially new ones that start with me, if I upload or, or, or put them into sort of smart trainers, whether on Zwift, program them into training peaks so that they can just be downloaded into the uh, trainer road apps and so forth. I don't <laughs> because I'm a big believer of staying very present for those 90 minutes of high quality intervals, technique based intervals with manual mode where you're in erg mode and you're adjusting the watts yourself and you're really going through the present moment with these intervals. And they're supposed to be quite challenging. They're going to require a lot of headspace and they're difficult. And so they should require you to not turn your brain off and let the machine just sort of dictate the effort, but for you to manually add those watts. And if you have to subtract those watts, going through that motion of personally putting it to whatever zone four, zone five watts and having to hold it there for the time until you hit minus or subtract those watts back down to a recovery wattage, that's very, very powerful because you are the impetus, not the machine, not some other force, <laughs> for lack of a better description, but you. And so erg mode and that commitment, especially you doing it by yourself, you're not in a big class, you're not in a big group, you have to labor through this mental game of 90 minutes of cycling intervals on your own. And I think it's important that we don't have that programmed and we don't have that um, already easily downloaded or put onto Swift and so forth. Spending some time in the pain cave without music maybe, or just in your head as you're suffering through what feels like 10 minutes and it's only 90 seconds, those are good exercises to then make riding on the road a lot easier for you mentally and physically because of the benefit of a trainer workout. In order to do the trainer workouts effectively, you sort of need to know your zones. And so we can test that in two ways. One with wattage that you can use the proper wattage on these cycling intervals. And uh, I have a test available that will test for your wattage and I can help you with your zones from that if you just send me the results of that or I have a heart rate test and it's not the five by one but the five by one running test gets us pretty close of what cycling numbers are as we know they're a little bit lower from a heart rate zone perspective than running because you're not using your arms and legs the same way as you would on a bike and so it's a little bit less usage of the arms on the bike, obviously. And so, and some rolling resistance versus overcoming gravity the same way when you're running. But that being said, once you have those zones, um, you can be quite successful in applying the zones to the cycling intervals. Now, heart rate zones are usually a range and people ask me, well, what does that mean with regards to the intervals? What, what we want to do is focus on the middle of the zone for whatever the number is. So 
If the number is zone three, you want to use that a wattage, a resistance, a value from your trainer that nets you heart rate in the middle of zone three. What you'll see over time is that that wattage number or that resistance number that you continuously see at zone two after a couple of times doing this, then you just use the number. You don't necessarily always uh, apply heart rate. It's the same way as we talked about earlier, just cross-referencing what you're feeling and effort level. In this case, whatever the wattage resistance is, you then write down and you use as your zone two next time or as your zone three next time, your zone four next time. I put in high zone four, low zone four. That's just, you know, adding a few watts here and there on the zone three number, um, not quite into zone four. And for those of you doing a wattage test, I also give you a range. And so, again, low zone three is low in the zone three range. High zone three is high in the zone three range. But I wanted to remind you all that you have that resource available and how to use them. Feel free to use them because in my opinion, you know, um, I think they're really good workouts. I think they're very effective and a great use of our limited time and really translates to the road really well. If you have questions on how to achieve your tests effectively, whether it's wattage or heart rate, just feel free to email me or send me your results of any test and I will just interpret them so that you have the proper wattages and heart rate zones to do the cycling intervals that you can find on apecoaching.com. All right. Well, I think that'll do it for this week of answering some emails, catching up, uh, checking in with all of you just as me without David. And next week, David and I will record another podcast that will probably come out in two weeks. That's what sort of the cycle we're currently on. Uh, two pods a month is the goal. A couple of newsletters a month. If you haven't signed up for the newsletter, you can do that on the website as well. We send out two or three newsletters a month. A lot of things going on in there, more about mindset, more about um, current happenings within the AIMP athlete world. But it usually starts off with a brief blog post of mine regarding the athlete's mindset and how to optimize um, who we are as athletes in the rest of our lives, our professional and work life, our family and personal life, all those legs of the three-legged stool. 